I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Last Letters from France When we left Barnum last week, he was still in Paris, busy writing letters, but was about to leave for England. This next bundle of letters from his copybook was penned two days later, on December 2nd, 1845, from Bologna, France. For Barnum, it was a day's journey traveling from Paris to Bologna on the northern coast. Today, the trip would only take about three to three and a half hours by car. After settling at the hotel, Barnum sat down to write letters to various family members, plus one to his museum manager, who was like family to Barnum, and another to the father of General Tom Thumb, Sherwood Stratton, who was still in Paris. Taking the opportunity to write that day was smart, as Barnum would be able to get the U.S.-bound letters on a steamship quickly, and because once he got to London, his time would be consumed with the arrangements for Tom Thumb's performances. The family correspondence includes letters to his wife Charity and to each of their daughters, his half-brother Philo, his niece Minerva, plus a message of instructions to his sister Cordelia, who was then living with Charity. This is the first time we've seen a letter to his mother in the copybook. In some ways, we find greater clarity about Barnum's relationships when reading letters that were all composed on the same day. 
They reflect Barnum's knowledge of things as they stood at that one moment in time and his mood or focus on that single day, giving us a fairly level playing field to compare the content of the letters. It is interesting, for instance, that Barnum sometimes shares the same information differently, or not at all, as he communicates to several correspondents. The letters thus reveal both subtle and not-so-subtle differences in what he wants the recipient to know or perceive. Of course, some letters were bound to be passed around to other family members and friends, and knowing there could be those additional recipients may also have shaped his messages. The question of building or buying a home has come up several times since the summer of 1845, when Charity returned to the U.S. Initially, neither the town or city nor the state had been fixed upon as the chosen location, but as the family was already renting a home in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that city seemed likely to take preference. Barnum mentioned other possibilities, such as Staten Island and Harlem. Later, Charity found a place she liked in Bridgeport and wanted to buy, at least at first, but her husband discouraged the purchase and suggested she wait until he was home again. Neither of Barnum's November 30th nor December 2nd letters to Charity mentioned the subject of finding or building a new home, but curiously, his letter to half-brother Philo, written on December 2nd, tells us pretty clearly he was steering away from Bridgeport. He wrote, I do not think I shall build in Bridgeport. It is too far off from my business in New York. There are some reasons why I should like to reside in Bridgeport, and there are some reasons why I should not. The former may preponderate after I return, but it is doubtful. One wonders that he did not communicate this to charity. Since we know that the Barnums ultimately made Bridgeport their home for 45 years, something caused a change of heart between December of 1845 and their decision to build on the Bridgeport-Fairfield border in 1847. Very possibly, the plans for the New York and New Haven East-West passenger train, which would have a stop in Bridgeport, made him reconsider the access to New York City. In fact, the full rail line, terminating in New Haven, was completed in 1848. Thus, the towns that were miles west of New Haven were probably being served in 1847. Another of Barnum's correspondents, among the December 2nd letters, was also seeking a new happy home and wanted his opinion. This was Barnum's mother, Irina Taylor Barnum, living in Bethel, Connecticut, about 20 miles north of Bridgeport. Charity had apparently informed her husband of the latest development in an ongoing situation, and had probably suggested that he respond directly to his mother to put any question of his willingness to help to rest. So he wrote, Dear Mother, I have just received a letter from my wife in which she says you think of building a house more to your mind than the one you now have, and of selling yours, and that you want my advice. Now, my advice is to have you do just what you think will make you the most happy, and that you can judge better than I possibly can. He continued with assurances that he would support her decision financially, whether by giving her the money she needed to build a new house, or if you prefer, take the money you get for your present house and put it out to interest, and I will furnish all the money to buy land and build a house just such as you desire and where you please, and will give you the whole rent-free as long as you live, and will also provide you with all you want to live on and make yourself happy during the remainder of your life. That certainly sounds like Barnum was open to supporting whatever his mother wished to do. But his next comments, expressed with some exasperation, suggest the subject had come up time and again, 
and he was weary of it. This will be a pleasure to me, and if you will permit me to enjoy this pleasure, you have only to say so without any ifs or ands about it. If I did not wish to do it, I should not offer it. My wife and Mrs. Hitchcock both know my feelings on this subject, and will do anything you desire to carry out your wishes. I do not like to urge this matter again and again, for by this time I think you ought to know my feelings and desires on the subject, and to no longer hesitate as if you did not believe me. Signing off, Barnum may have chosen certain adjectives to tease his mother, who had perhaps voiced fears about her son's character in times past using those words. Please give my respects to all friends, and oblige your affectionate, but of course very wicked and wayward son, P.T. Barnum. There's another line in the letter that is interesting, concerning a piece of land that was connected in some way to the business Barnum had once operated in Bethel, a general store. He told his mother, I had rather keep my half of the garden to go with my yellow store, but if it will help the sale of your house to put my garden with it, then do so, and call my garden what you please. This comment tells us that Irina was living adjacent to or in very close proximity to Barnum's old yellow store, which was at the corner of Chestnut and Main Streets. Irina was apparently not, at this time, living in the home at 55 Greenwood Avenue, often referred to today as Barnum's Home, just a short walk from Chestnut Street. This attractive front gable structure replaced the colonial salt box house where Barnum was born, which burned some years after he was grown. The house is a completely different style, a vernacular Greek revival, reflecting New England's changing tastes in architecture in the early 1800s. According to some sources, a portion of the original salt box structure was not burned and is still on site. Whether there was a standing portion incorporated into the new structure or whether intact posts and beams were reused in the new construction is not clear, but it is certain that the date of 1768 on the home's plaque only applies to the salvaged components, not the house as it appears from the street. Different sources offer bits and pieces about the property's history. The facts get a little fuzzy. One states that the fire occurred in 1835. Others put that event in the 1840s. Another source says that the Greek Revival structure was built in 1843 and that Barnum's mother later repurchased the property and lived there until her death in 1868. That indicates she was not the person who built the new house. Armed with this information, we would say the copybook letter tells us Irina was living on or near Chestnut Street in 1845, and may very well have been contemplating the idea of a new house like the one built on Greenwood Avenue, which probably wasn't for sale at that moment. Perhaps in time, her son made a dream come true, buying her the modern Greek Revival house situated on the old family property. Of note, Barnum's young widowed sister, Cordelia Benedict, and her infant son Charles, whom he and Charity had recently taken into their home in Bridgeport, would also move to the house on Greenwood Avenue and live with Irina. Their names are on the 1850 census as part of Irina's household. Barnum penned another of the December 2nd letters to his niece Minerva, daughter of his half-brother Philo, who had become Bridgeport's postmaster. Minerva must have been several years older than Barnum's own daughters, for he thanked her for her short and sweet letter, asked her to deliver his note to Helen, and also, rather slyly, instructed her to tell the postmaster in Bridgeport that three letters from my wife never reached me, because he was careless, 
and let them go off without the postage being paid. To that, he added, half-jokingly, We will have him turned out of office if he don't look out. Then told her how much he looked forward to seeing her again, and signed the letter, Your uncle and friend, P.T. Barnum. Barnum doted on his five-year-old Helen, worried constantly about her health, and always sent her kisses. But he sent a sterner note when writing to his older daughter Caroline. To his youngest, Barnum proudly noted how glad he was to get her letter and to know that she was learning so fast. He also shared the news that although seven-year-old Tom Thumb would not be back home again for a while, he thanks you for your card and says he will marry you. So that is settled. Reminding Helen to be good and mind your mother and Aunt Cordelia, he promised to bring the presents she had asked for. Caroline, on the other hand, received letters from her father that are not so cuddly, and even sound a bit harsh considering she was only 12 years old. At this time in her life, she was adjusting to being far from home. Her father had insisted that she attend a boarding school where she would hear, speak, and read French almost all the time, and the chosen school was in Washington, D.C. Barnum wrote to his daughter, Dear Caroline, I am on my way to London, and thinking this letter might be in time to be sent by steamship, I write a few lines. I shall not be home before February, perhaps not till March, so I can't bring you to Bridgeport for Christmas. But you must wait patiently till I come, unless some person of your acquaintance is coming from Washington to New York about Christmas time. A few months longer will make no difference to you. There is no use in being babyish and wishing to run home so often. It only makes you more lonesome after being home on a visit. Besides, if you stay six or seven months away before going home, you have less chance, I hope, to talk English, and thus become more perfect in your French. How do you get along with your French and other studies? I went with the general to visit the king again last week. The general got lots of presents, and the king gave me $100. A previous episode focused on Barnum's own homesickness, which was considerable, so it is surprising that he did not express some sympathy regarding Caroline's longing to visit her mother and sister at home, and, in particular, her desire to be at home for Christmas. He dutifully passed on the good wishes and compliments of friends they had made during the family's time in England and in Paris, then bluntly added that Uncle Allenson was not in Baltimore after all, so you cannot visit his family there. Barnum had previously suggested she might visit them, as he believed that his uncle was about to become co-owner of Peel's Museum in that city. After providing instructions on where to write to him in London, Barnum used surprisingly formal language in closing the letter. Hoping this may find you in good health and spirits, I am your affectionate father in haste, P.T. Barnum. Finally, to charity, Barnum made plain his reasons for not returning for the holidays, or in January. However, his reply must at least have given Charity some hope he would be home when the birth of their new baby was expected. I shall be home in February or March. I wish to get home as much as you wish to have me. But for all that, I am not going to make a fool of myself and run home like a little boy, with my business half-finished. So you need not try to tempt me with oysters and shortcakes, pancakes, roast turkey, and all that gammon. In England, we can get a roast beef, plum pudding, cake, and ale, and that is not to be sneezed at. If I am seasick in coming home this winter, I will blame you for urging me to come. Business in London is dull as dishwater. 
T. Barnum arrived in London at seven o'clock on Wednesday evening, December 3, 1845, concluding his on-site role in France with General Tom Thumb's entourage. In London, with its population of over two million, Barnum anticipated being able to make the General's European tour profitable once again, mirroring their success in the United Kingdom in 1844. Aside from performances in Paris during the first few months of 1845, turning a profit had been difficult in France. Both the travel expenses as the dozen moved from town to town and the French taxes on theater performances were considerable. Barnum admitted, though only to those with whom he was close, that not much money was being made on the French tour, even in the larger towns, and despite having performed on several occasions for the king and royal family. He eventually extricated himself from the remaining contractual obligations and cut the tour short by a month or so. As we learned in letters written from France in late October and through November, Barnum was already focusing his efforts on London and had high hopes of getting seven-year-old Charles Stratton, General Tom Thumb, booked in theaters to be part of the popular Christmas season pantomimes. Barnum had first contacted a couple of theater managers directly, but not hearing back, had written to an agent friend of his, Mr. Fillingham, to see if he could get things rolling and work out preliminary arrangements. He had also employed Albert R. Smith, a popular writer, to recraft Tom Thumb's play Le Petit Poussé for British audiences. In spite of all Barnum's efforts, things suddenly did not seem so promising in London, nor even for a second tour of UK cities and towns. One can only imagine how deeply disappointed Barnum must have felt when he realized that the intended encore in the UK could be fraught with challenges and would certainly require a lot of hard work to make it successful. On December 4th, writing to an unnamed correspondent involved in managing the tour, Barnum gave the discouraging news, though tempered by the feeling that being in England would nonetheless be better than remaining in France. I have been to the various theaters today and can do nothing here with the general. Every kind of business is dull as dishwater in London. So at present, I think our best plan will be to commence operations in the country. It's no matter how quick you quit France, for we can't do worse here than there. Barnum's never-give-up attitude kicked into gear, and to that end, he determined that information gathering and perhaps hiring an experienced promoter would help him plan a tour until the London theater scene revived. He continued, I am going down to Camberwell tonight to try to find Mr. Sheffield, who advertises for Isaac Van Amberg, the lion tamer, and Titus for seven years. He knows every inch of ground in England, Ireland, and Scotland, every hotel and editor and hall and road, and would be of great value to us if we can get him. If not, I can at least get some information out of him. Selling souvenirs on tour would also add to the profits, so Barnum touched base with the Birmingham firm of Allen & Moore, which had been making finely detailed medals for him that seemed to be selling well. Since we have not a single medal left, we shall want a thousand or thereabouts to begin on. I would like, however, to have you send me one in a letter to the above address, as a sample of the new die with four ponies. As soon as I have examined it, I will decide and write you regarding the number to be made for us. In addition, he advised his tour manager to tell Monsieur Pinta, their translator, 
to be a good fellow and make himself useful by translating all of that portion of the general's biography which relates to France, and send it to me immediately by mail so I can get it into his book here. Barnum must have wanted to expand the souvenir booklet that would be sold to people coming to Egyptian Hall, for example. This was the popular exhibition hall in London where Charles had been so successful in 1844. He would certainly have wanted the printer to update the original booklet with stories of General Tom Thumb's performances for King Louis Philippe, as well as other highlights of the French tour. Two days later, Barnum's optimism about embarking on a tour suffered a blow after meeting with Mr. Sheffield. On December 6th, he wrote to Charles's father, Sherwood Stratton, who, as his business partner, needed to know what lay ahead when they arrived in mid-December. Things still look very dull in England. I have had a long interview with Titus's advertiser and find that we have been already to all the principal good towns in this country. We can't go to Oxford and Cambridge till February on account of the vacations, and we can't go to Scotland till March on account of snow. And how we shall make out in dodging about the best towns we can find in England is a matter of uncertainty. I wish to the God that we were safely in America. However, we may find, on trying, that our business here will be better than prospects indicate. Barnum came up with another plan, of course, which he shared with Stratton. It seems almost necessary to open here one week merely to get time to start and to get the big bills printed from the new cut you are to bring, etc. But as it would cost too much to open a hall purposely for one week, I am going to try the Adelaide Gallery today. For if they stand all expense and give us half, and if besides we can get a few nights at the uptown theaters, it will not be bad. In the meantime, Barnum temporarily left the place where he usually stayed in London, 25 Rupert Street in Haymarket, to go and lodge at 16 King Street in Portman Square. His strategy was to move closer to Albert Smith, as he wanted to meet with him and discuss the play. His note of December 5th begins, Dear Smith, I stop here nights, so I can call on you on my way downtown any morning that it is requisite, by your dropping a line into the post the evening previous. My present opinion is that the General will not play in London for the present, and therefore that we can give you more time to finish his piece. Suggesting that they plan to have dinner together, and perhaps also hoping to expand his contracts, Barnum continued, I shall be in town six, eight, or ten days and will be most happy to have you dine with me on any day and hour and at any place you name. I merely lodge up here and dine wherever it happens, so if you will name time and place to meet and dine with me, I'll feel most happy and much obliged. We can then have a chance to talk up the matter of the peace. As I am quite alone, I shall be happy for you to bring along a friend if you think three will make a more agreeable party than two. The matter of the piece referred to Barnum's concern that the play was too short. It is not clear how he came to hear it, but he told Smith, Since hearing the first act yesterday, I quite fear that it may have one fault, and I fear only one, that is to say, brevity. I more than half think you had better make three acts of it. I fear it would not do for us to talk to a manager about playing our new piece unless that new piece took an hour or more for its performance. Smith must have responded with a firm rebuttal about the length of the play, and perhaps he even felt that Barnum was giving him a backhanded compliment, hinting that the play was not yet stunning. 
I have such faculties for making noise in America that I expect to have the biggest fuss got up there about the General's new piece and its immortal author that you have seen for many a day, and expecting to have said fuss pay me well. I am, of course, the more anxious to have you hit them hard and give them something particularly stunning. Whatever it was that Smith wrote in response, Barnum quickly sent back an apologetic note on December 6th, fearing he had insulted Smith. My dear Smith, I guess you are more than two-thirds right, and that I was tarnally, that is, damnably, mistaken in supposing that you had read me one act instead of a scene. I must have been cursed stupid, and so I was. However, I see now that I was particularly green, and that you are up to snuff. So I have only to confess my faults, and say to you, go ahead. No doubt feeling sheepish, he closed with, I await your directions regarding dinner. The majority of Barnum's other letters from these early December dates is taken up by explaining the best routes for the entourage to use in getting from France to London and reducing baggage expenses if possible. The boat leaving Bologna would go to Folkestone, a busy harbor on the English coast, today where the Channel Tunnel or Channel begins. From Folkestone, he advised they should take the train to London. Just as we might do today, Barnum offered tips on getting the baggage through customs quickly. He recommended, Pay your passages and have your names entered the moment you get on board steamboat, and by that means you will be first on the list and get through the customs house in time for the express train. All in all, leaving Paris on a Thursday morning or afternoon for Bologna, then crossing the English Channel and taking the express train to London, meant they could expect to arrive on Saturday at 2.30 p.m. Barnum's letters include several other interesting details. A friend of the Mr. Lawson he has often referred to was apparently given permission to buy things at auction in Paris for him. Barnum instructed Stratton to pay whatever was owed to Mr. Lawson and tell him to keep the things till I give him directions about them, except any little things which you can bring. You will please bring. In a separate letter, he advised Stratton don't let the miniature painter disappoint about those likenesses, and if possible, have Mrs. Collins' pin mounted in Paris. Our curator Adrian's curatorial imagination had her thinking that Barnum commissioned an artist to paint a few miniature portraits of General Tom Thumb while he was in Paris, and the one for Mrs. Collins was to be made into jewelry in the form of a brooch. Portrait miniatures were popular, though not inexpensive, in the days before photography, and would certainly be considered a special gift. In 1845, photography was still quite new, and would not yet replace portrait miniatures with lockets holding tiny photos. Finally, as Barnum worried that he might lose his shirt in his next venture in the UK, it is intriguing to discover that, in fact, he had just lost several of his real shirts. He wrote to Stratton about the theft. You know, I had 12 linen shirts made in Brussels. Six of them are gone. Please tell Mrs. Lawson that they must have been taken from the drawer in my bureau, as I generally left my door open, and that I want her to keep her eye open, and perhaps she may find out the thief. They were all linen, with ruffle shirts, collars, and waistbands stitched inside for turning over, and a loop and buttonhole at the breast. Barnum was not being extravagant in having had a dozen shirts made, it was common practice in the 1700s and early 1800s to have several made at one time, as it was more efficient to cut multiples of the shirt pieces, 
which at that time were rectangles, squares, and triangles, not curved shapes. The shirtmaker would calculate the best layout of contiguous squares and rectangles on a length of cloth, so that not a scrap was wasted. Since all the shirts would be identical, except perhaps for details, the owner's initials and a number were usually added in ink or embroidery to ensure that the shirts were evenly rotated through wearing and laundering, and that they were returned to the proper owner. If Barnum's three initials had been put on, and a suspected thief was identified, these would provide evidence that the showman's shirts had been pilfered. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.